I'd like to take this time to welcome Danielle DiMartino Booth. She is the author of Fed Up. Uh, she's here on the Patriot Trading Group to uh, not only share her insights with the internal workings of the Federal Reserve, but obviously talk about her experience in her book. Uh, Danielle, I got your book right after President's Day. I just loved it. I thought it was fantastic. The pleasure was, well, it, well, no, it really wasn't much fun. Um, but I, I, I had to do it, and it's done, and I'm pleased it is being so well-received and read, read cover to cover. You know, we always get the book from the head of the Federal Reserve, right? Alan Greenspan, he likes to write his books. Ben Bernanke likes to write his books. And, of course, they always justify uh, all of their actions. And I thought it was just fantastic that we get an insider's view of how the Federal Reserve operates. And let me ask you, what was the motivation for the book? You know, hindsight being what it is, I'm intrigued that you started off by asking or by mentioning the other books. Um, if I wasn't fed up years ago, you know, Batime, you know, Batime's stress test came out, Timothy Geithner's book, right. and, and The Courage to Act, Ben Bernanke's book, which was, you know, a huge encyclopedic tome. You know, the self-congratulatory tone and the Ludlum-esque titles, I sat there saying to myself, Really? You're really patting yourself on the back before history's been written. And the history has yet to be written. And one of the things that I have been firm with with our audience, I think history is going to judge Alan Greenspan, Ben Bernanke, Janet Yellen very cruelly. And and I and I was one of the things that that at least for me is all of these great academic people and all of their great academic models, and they have access to more data than anybody on the planet. How is it they didn't see any of this coming? I call it monetary myopia. Think about a horse with really big blinders on. Look, the models dictated that the crisis could never happen. The Federal Reserve technically only regulated 25% of mortgage lenders. So said, in his infinite wisdom, Alan Greenspan. And therefore, he didn't have to worry about the other 75%, the other gigantic falling knife. Uh, look, this was, this was hubris in its worst form, in, in, in my humble opinion. These were models that were redeployed time and again. The tequila crisis. Heck, he'd go take it all the way back to 1987 with Alan Greenspan when he started leaking information, allowing the New York Fed to leak information to the bond market in advance of Fed moves. That was when Wall Street started to front run the Fed. And then we had the tequila crisis and the Orange County bankruptcy and long term capital management. And every single time the Fed came riding into the rescue using the same models that said we'd best not let price discovery occur of its own natural volition, we should keep interest rates held artificially low for too long over and over again and ignore what the credit markets are telling us about an overabundance of debt and, it, and the consequences thereof and just keep doing these things over and over again. It, it, it was, it, 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 you know, Einstein has actually not been credited with his, 
you know, with, with his most quoted definition of insanity. I don't know who said it, and frankly, I don't care, but that was what it was like. It was like being Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. It seems like they just kept running the same play over and over and over again. And and one of my, you know, one of the things that I liked about as I was reading your book, how you described how you came to be at the Dallas Federal Reserve. Kind of, you were supposed to be the person that took all of the, I guess the monetary myopia of these PhDs and these economists. And, and essentially put it into readable form? Would that, that be was an my accurate goal. description? My goal was the Queen's English because I, you know, I, I it's not so much that I think that, look, I, I, there's no sour grapes here. I'm not, I don't have anything against any of these people as individuals. But by the same token, I'm a fairly intelligent person with a great education and I find it to be highly offensive when PhDs in economics use complex terms just to make sure that nobody besides their colleagues who call them doctor understand what the heck they're talking about. Yeah, and you think That's about wrong. Alan Greenspan, we used to call it Greenspan glyphics because no sure. one really understood anything he was saying. And You know, he was interviewed subsequent to that. And he was asked. Uh, he, he was asked on 60 Minutes if he was trying to be purposefully obtuse, and he said yes. And let me ask you this: So as you as you started down this path, and 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 I and you you uh, essentially get noticed uh, by Richard Fisher, who was the lone dissenting voice during the whole. Uh, financial meltdown as far as all the things the Federal Reserve wanted to do with bringing rates to zero uh, and, and, of course, all of the quantitative easing measures and all of these things. And and can you describe how it was that you were able uh, to come into that position where you were kind of the goal, the go-to person for the same economic data every other Fed governor had access to, and yet your Fed governor at the Dallas Federal Reserve somehow got completely different viewpoint than all the rest of them. Well, so understand that that Richard Fisher and I were both MBAs in finance that started our careers hoofing it on Wall Street the hard way. So we truly understood what productivity was. And every, uh, you know, he, he, it's, it, it's that same general philosophy and prism through which we saw the world that initially bonded us to one another. Now, fast forward to kind of 07, and I'm literally on bed rest with my twins, and Bear Stearns is blowing up, the world as we know it is ending, and, you know, I was bored watching CNBC on mute and started sending him information on credit default swaps of individual big banks and saying, sir, we've got a problem here. The, the market is advertising that systemic risk is building in the system. And that ended up being the genesis of my becoming Richard Fisher's markets desk. Now, this was unorthodox on his part. This was a big no-no. The majority of Federal Reserve districts out there take their markets intelligence from the New York Fed. 
But Richard Fisher and I both made note of the fact that a lot of the research that came off the market's desk smacked of sell-side research. And, and you have to recognize it. You have, you have to know it to recognize it. But So he decided to have his own market's desk. So I would travel up to New York before every FOMC meeting, and I would meet with some of the same people that my peers at the New York Fed were meeting with on trading desks and at credit rating agencies and economists and, and analysts. And I would come away with vastly different takes on what the markets were communicating. And Richard Fisher would arm himself and go into the meetings and be a pain in everybody's backside with my analysis. Can I ask you how... I guess this is the part that really has frustrated me over the years is the Federal Reserve seems married to these economic models that continually miss the mark. And yet there's no... It seems to me that there's no... um, And I don't know the word that I'm looking for, but nobody willing to say, hey, you know what? We need to find a better way. We need a better model, or we need to to do things differently. And it's almost like the model isn't broken. It's the data that's coming into the model, and it's somebody else's fault. And all we can do is fix it. False. <laughs> Look, there are there are there are inflation gauges and inflation gauges. I don't I don't I don't, I don't hold any harm with with the statisticians, but I do say that. Just because it's the core PCE and it's been the accepted measure of inflation, you know, if it's proven to not capture all the different and various forms of inflation out there that led up to the financial crisis, you might want to throw it down the garbage disposal and start from scratch. You've got a bunch of economists in-house. You've got the brain power to come up with a new mousetrap. Do it. And yet they didn't. And that was really, really what got me fed up and what what hatched the idea of writing the book in my mind was because they had this great opportunity to affect change in their models and and they they squandered it and i think that's a you bring up a great point whether you talk about the inflation models or you talk about the jobs model, uh, one of Janet Yellen's favorites now, saying that there's full employment, yet 95 million people aren't in the workforce. Uh, 90% of all the jobs, I think it's actually 95% or 94% of all the jobs created in the last 10 years are part-time and contract-type labor jobs. And and they're sitting there talking about full employment. And, then, of course, as you know, you know there's six different uh, unemployment reports that that are out there. The Federal Reserve, in my opinion, has convinced everybody to use the one that makes their economic models appear to be true uh, and kind of throw, uh, I don't want to say throw them in the garbage, but don't want to talk about any of the other models or uh, other reports that may cast those models in a negative light. Do you feel the same way? Yes, I, I do. Um, you know, it, it, it pays to look back a little bit further in history. It was in the aftermath of the last recession in the 80s that we had kind of a robust traditional rebound in the jobs market. And since then, 
since the era of Alan Greenspan, when again, companies have sensed that there is this very invisible hand of the Fed that, that's, that's impeding price discovery, it's been since then that we've had this, this glorious era of share buybacks and, 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 and that productivity has really taken it on the chin and these jobless recoveries. And I lay them at the feet of, A, a feckless Congress, which I think we can all agree upon. Mm-hmm. They didn't need to let the, the Fed do their entire job, but yet they have. But we are talking about politicians. Um, but I lay it also at the feet of the, the Fed in, intruding where they didn't belong. One of the things that I advocate for is putting the job of maximizing employment back into the hands of the private sector and taking it away from the Fed. I think the 1977 expansion of the Fed's mandate to include maximizing employment was a mistake. And even though it would take an act of Congress, let's get to it. Let's acknowledge that mistake and move on. Right, so essentially saying, hey, economic policy by in itself, right? And we've seen this. Rates went to zero for 10 years. Uh, you go to Alan Greenspan when he brought rates down to 1% which started the whole housing bubble. And really, you probably got to go back to all the deregulation that occurred in the late 90s on top of uh, the, the interest rate declines uh, for, for that disaster du jour. Uh, but do you agree? You well, know, look, I, I'm going to interrupt you for ahead. a second, because if you close your eyes, you can, you can envision a very large, blown-up version of the Time magazine cover, The Committee to Save the World, that happens to be framed beautifully and hangs in my office. Robert Rubin, Larry Summers, Alan Greenspan on the cover, The Committee to Save the World. Right, and if course, they ever, were the architects of this deregulation. They were. Unfortunately, we owe credit to defa- knowing what credit default swaps are and all of these things because of them. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the one whistleblower who tried to raise her hand and say, you know what, this is a really bad situation, I, I mean, they, they literally pushed her out of office. And if I'm ever weak in my convictions or I'm unsure about what I'm doing or the sacrifice that I've made in writing the book or in the weekly newsletter, if I'm ever unsure, all I need to do is glance over my right shoulder at that big blown-up poster that's framed of the Committee to Save the World, and I'm like, oh, got it, I understand. I'm back on track. Right. I'm on the prize. Let's keep going. Let me ask you this, and this is one of the things uh, that, that I really think has become very, very interesting, and, and it will be a two, two, two parts that I think are tied together. Uh, one, uh, Neil Kashkari. Okay, the new Minneapolis Fed chief, he you know he was the person anointed to to be in charge of the uh, the TARP program, and he was out saying just last week that there's really a third mandate for the Federal Reserve on top of price stability and and full employment, and talking about uh, the equity markets, the debt markets. And that really is a an untalked about third mandate. Do you have any feelings about that? Lender of last resort, shepherd of financial stability. I get it. I do. Um, 
but it is not the job of the markets to set monetary policy. That is that is the tail wagging the dog. It is what it is what facilitates moral hazard, and it is a slippery slope. Very, and I can only hope that, that that future policymakers step away from this disease. I mean, part of what you talked about earlier about price discovery. Can you elaborate for our listeners? I know what you mean by that, but can you elaborate about how the Federal Reserve has been hampering price discovery, which is causing all kinds of risk to be put back into the system? And really kind of going back to uh, Alan Greenspan, who I really think facilitated all of this risk and thought that he could manage it all. And, of course, we obviously know today that he couldn't. Uh, but can you, can you kind of shed some light on what price discovery is and how the Federal Reserve is hampering that and what could be the negative effects of that? So, you know, the, the simplest way for me to illustrate price discovery is what we're not seeing in corporate America today. It's really difficult to evaluate the long-term prospects for an investment if you don't have an interest rate with which to price that investment. What you can do, however, is take out a bond and go into the market and buy back your shares, and in doing so, reduce your share count, which means that your earnings per share are higher. So from an outsider looking in, if you've been on you know, planet Mars for the past 30 years, you would come back and say, wow, that is, there must be some kind of cash flow powering these companies. And yet there's not. We've had years of anemic top-line growth, and yet strong enough profit growth because of share buybacks to provide the illusion that there's been some semblance of price discovery and that investors are behaving in a rational fashion, whereas all they're doing is chasing corporations and what they're doing. But nothing productive is coming of this. And in the process, because of zero interest rates, it's impossible to truly say what a share is valued at. Now, let me follow that up, because I think that was spot on. You know, in the Fed's models, right, the lowering of rates was supposed to induce corporations to invest in the future, right, to go out and borrow the money to, to expand R&D, to build a new plant, maybe to add some workers. And then the thought would be, as they did this, right, more people would be put to work, more people would have jobs. In turn, when those people were earning that money, they'd go out and spend it, and they'd buy a car and a house, and, and the economy would get going again. What we've seen, especially in, in as you have pointed out, ever since the late 80s, every single time the Fed has gone on one of these rate reduction operations, the the return, the ROI seemed to be less and less and and really culminating in this last ten years where the ROI was simply all as these corporations did 
was borrow money really cheaply and buy back their own stock. They didn't build any factories. They didn't increase any R&D. They didn't get any of these people allegedly back in the workforce making money. And isn't that a big reason why the growth rate is where, where it's at today? Well, of course it is. But I'm going to stand up and defend Joe Q, CEO. Uh, look, it, it was you know early on in the days of unconventional monetary policy, a lot of these CEOs were saying, well, we'll make long-term investment decisions once the Fed's out of the picture. It's really difficult to look into, uh, look, look over the horizon and see what the operating environment is going to be like as long as, this, as there's this element of artificiality in the markets. So just as soon as the Fed's out of the way, we'll wait and see what the operating environment is and we'll invest accordingly. They're still waiting. So you can't blame them for doing what they can do to maximize shareholder return because it's their duty. Right, that's their job. That's what they get paid to do, right? That's the CEO's job. So why is it the Federal Reserve doesn't see this? Well, that's that's the four point trillion four point five trillion dollar question, isn't it? And then let me ask you this. You talk you just brought up the Fed's balance sheet. How does that ever go away? Well, at this point, unfortunately, uh, I think a lot of bond market participants, particularly in the sovereign market globally, have been operating under the assumption that the securities on Federal Reserve and on other central bank balance sheets have been permanently expunged from the system such that there will always be reinvestment to make sure that the supply of bonds is kept permanently at a low level. This is a very dangerous world we live in. But it is how investors have been trained to think ever since New York Fed's Bill Dudley came out and changed the order of the exit strategy to say we can normalize interest rates before we begin to shrink the balance sheet. And were wise enough to see that normalization, quote-unquote, was going to take a really long time, if ever, before we hit our next recession, ergo, the bonds that have been purchased, the security sitting on central bank balance sheets have gone away forever. And that means, to answer your question in a long-winded fashion, that the minute any central banker worldwide allows any security to roll off their balance sheet and not be replaced, this gentleman's agreement that's been in place and a huge prop and support for bond prices and a huge suppressant on bond yields, it's game over. Whatever central bank blinks first, the whole we're going to see, and this is really kind of the, the, the thought that I've had, which is they've taken this risk and they've made it even worse but are pretending that they've made it better in the short term. Would you agree with that? I would. I would agree with that. But they've rendered the situ- they've rendered the situation that much more vulnerable to even the slightest tick up in interest rates, which by the way, I'm not that worried about. I'm not 
rising interest rates aren't keeping me up at night because the 10-year is telling us that the economy is going to slow. Right. The 10-year is telling, telling everybody, hey, despite all the hype and d- despite all the, the positive sentiment, the actual factual data underneath it all says the economy's not going to grow. And and I, I got it's this. Not, this recovery is very long in the tooth. It, it's becoming exhausted. And and I got I got a question for you. So so we talk about this recovery, and you talked about uh, the the new era of central banking, where they've taken these quote unquote extraordinary measures, and it seems like none of them know how to end any of these extraordinary measures because. The, ending any of these extraordinary measures just opens up the everybody to systemic risk all across the globe and all across the system, across the entire bond market, across the entire equities market. Do you ever see a a time where rates ever do normalize ever again? And I know ever is the long time. Let, let's say in the next ten years. Well, I do, but, but but potentially by force. And these are the things that really keep me up at night. Uh, not the falling 10-year yield, but the very idea that if you talk to people, in fact, I'm writing about this right now, but if you talk to people, they say that the ultimate end game will entail a full-blown monetization of developed world sovereign debt and a collaborative effort in order to make the debt truly disappear forever. Well, guess what? If I'm China, I'm not going to take that sitting down. I'm not. And these are the things that sow the seeds of, of war. And I don't mean to be doom and gloom. I truly, truly don't. But wars get started because of economic upheaval and because of inequality gaps that are never satisfactorily closed and because the anger never dissipates. And you start thinking about right Donald Trump becoming president and a lot of people because of that really just that anger and dissatisfaction uh, with the current economic environment uh, and you're seeing that across the board you, you, we saw that with the the UK uh, voting to 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 leave the euro uh, looks like the populist movement in France. We could see uh, possibly the next president there. Uh, and you're just seeing this rise across the globe, aren't we? We are. And I think that it is at our peril that we look the other way and try and disregard what's becoming a wide movement as something that is simply on the fringe. But that's the media, right? The media wants to say it doesn't exist, right? And it's only uh, a few, and, and, and they're to be ostracized, kind of like as, as in your book. One of your, I don't know if, if that person was a friend of yours, but one of the, the, the people before the crisis even hit, uh, in Jackson Hole and Alan Greenspan's farewell, was very critical of what the Federal Reserve and particularly Alan Greenspan had done. And what happened? They got ostracized, uh, they got discredited, they got shamed, they got humiliated, and essentially, uh, you know, 
should be treated as such. And, and of course, that person ended up being exactly right. Uh, and I don't know why that is, but that just, just seems to be the go-to card. It, you know, it's true, and I, you know, I I told that story for a very important reason, and the reason that the, the book is written the way it is, uh, and the reason that there were a hundred pages of endnotes, and they had to decrease it to the tiniest font known to God and man. The reason it's so well documented is because I didn't set out to write a book that was some kind of an angry rant about my observations. These are, the, the book is written in the words and in the experiences of other people in order to illustrate a point. And that's that this is not, this is not some one-off situation. It's something that has grown out of 30 years of prideful, misguided, hubris policies by people who will ostracize anybody who dares to speak out and speak up, even if they're right. What is your solution? You know, i am I'm been a big proponent. I, I believe that we should have an oversight that Federal Reserve uh, needs to be, at, at the very least, audited. Uh, I'm, I particularly think we should probably, you know, look back at, at going back to something uh, along the lines of a gold standard. I know that's not necessarily your belief, but where, where do you think we should go from here? I think the best bet we have is to cut the mandate in half. I think we need to get rid of the alphabet soup of banking regulators that we have. If that means taking supervision away from the Fed, so be it. I'm not saying it should be inside the Fed or outside the Fed. I'm saying we should have one strong banking regulator populated with people who were bright enough to graduate from MIT, just like the, the, the graduates from MIT who go on to Wall Street, pay them market rates so that they can read a bank balance sheet and a shadow bank balance sheet, install leaders at the Fed who are independent and objective and that they have the ability to say no and engage in vigorous debate and dissent and distill the power base away from Washington, D.C., take it away from New York, spread it evenly among the districts, get rid of some of the districts, save the, save the taxpayers some money. I, I'm sorry, I hate to say this, a lot of, I, I made a lot of good friends at the Fed. We don't need a thousand PhDs in economics who are either directly employed with or contracted with the Fed. Get rid of half of them. There's too much. There, 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 there's too much duplication of efforts. And then when you have a lean, mean, streamlined organization that is solely looking out for the buying power of the U.S. dollar and is making sure that the cowboys in the banking system don't run off half-cocked and leave tax losses, bring Glass-Steagall back, by the way, while you're at it, and then you don't have a need to audit the Fed. Well, and you have discipline in your policymaking, and you're not going to allow politicians to take advantage of artificially low interest rates because you're going to vow to never go back to the zero bound. I will say this. Danielle, it has been a pleasure speaking with you. I would love the opportunity uh, to have further discussions with you in the future and have you back on our program. 
your book is wildly insightful. I found it fascinating because it was finally something where, like I said, uh, it wasn't a a victory lap like a Alan Greenspan or Ben Bernanke uh, talking about all the great things they did and how they, you know, were only saving the markets and that none of them were ever at fault. But this was just a no nonsense look inside how the Federal Reserve really operates. How do people get a hold of your book? How do they follow you? How how do they keep up to speed with what it is you're doing? Well, go on my website, demartinobooth.com, sign up for my newsletter, look at my archive, some of the other writings that I've done. Uh, I publish weekly. Um, I'm a Bloomberg columnist. You can follow me on The View as well. And buy the book. Go to your Barnes & Noble. Go to your local bookseller. Go to Amazon.com. I recorded the book myself on Audible. Download it if you're stuck in traffic. Listen to me. The conviction and passion you hear in my voice comes right through in my recording of the book. Download it onto your tablet. Do whatever you need to do, and when you're finished, promise me that you'll pass it on to your parents and your children. That's probably the most important thing. Daniel D. Martino Booth, thank you so much for joining us, and I look forward to having more conversations with you in the future. Thank you so much. Great conversation. Awesome. I appreciate thank it. Thank you, Danielle. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.